I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. As I mentioned last week, it's my joy, along with others of our associate pastors, to teach through this book this school year. As I mentioned last time, it's a book that focuses on some key themes that make it appropriate for our study, one being the return of Christ. It's an appropriate application of the Revelation study that we've enjoyed on Sunday nights and will continue on Sunday mornings in the coming weeks. It's also a book that focuses on Paul's heart and ministry. It spurs us to minister faithfully to one another, even in the midst of a culture that is hostile and that makes that difficult. And it's also a book that's focused on the church. In fact, the key theme of this book is that of the establishment and growth of a model church. See, it reminds us of the the priority and New Testament pattern for planting and growing a healthy church. And it's, it's really that theme that we will focus on in the text that we will study together tonight. Now you recall that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had planted a church in Thessalonica. But they were forced to leave before they would have intended to as a result of the Jewish persecution that arose there. And, and later Paul had sent Timothy back to that church to check on them, to see how they were doing this young church in the midst of difficult circumstances that I'm sure there was much that they wished they had been able to teach them in person. And, and Timothy returned and brought a good report, and, and Paul responded by writing this letter, a letter written to encourage them regarding their growth and faithfulness and to instruct them regarding their continued need to excel and, and also to answer some questions that had been raised, particularly about the return of Christ. Last week, we studied the first five verses. We saw the letter begin with an expression of gratitude for God's work in the Thessalonians, gratitude that was rooted in in the relationship that Paul and the others had with them and, and in their remembrance of them in prayer and in their recognition of God's sovereign choice and work in their lives. These verses provided us with a recipe for consistently expressing gratitude ourselves for the work that we see God doing in others. And tonight we come to chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. If you notice, between verses 5 and 6, you see a, a period at the end of verse 5 and, and the start of a new sentence in verse 6. So in some ways, this is a, a transition to a new idea, but it's also still very closely connected, both grammatically and thematically, to what has come before it. In, in some ways, this text still falls under the umbrella of gratitude that Paul began back in verse 2 when he said, we give thanks to God always for all of you. He's continued to, to expound on the things for which he is grateful about the Thessalonians, and, and it flows also out of verse 4 where Paul was saying that he knows, beloved by God, his choice of you. He had confidence that God had chosen them because of the fruit that was produced, and he's going to continue to expound on that fruit in these verses as well. But there is still a clear shift from a focus on God's work in them to really God's work through them in this text. Let's pick up in verse 4 to get the context, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Paul writes, knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything." For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. You see, as Paul reflected on God's work in Thessalonica, he recognized that the work God did in them reverberated out from them as well. You know, this is God's design for every local church, for believers to be transformed themselves 
and then collectively for those transformed believers to impact others. Like a rock thrown into a pond, there's the initial splash, but then the ripples go outward, affecting the entirety of that surface of the water. The church at Thessalonica was a model of that, a model of the impact of a healthy church, which is what we want to focus on tonight. You know, there's much confusion today about how churches impact others around them. Some churches try to impact the world around them by becoming as much like the world as possible in order to attract the world to the church. They think the world must be comfortable with the church in order to be influenced by it. In some such churches, you know, pastors do things like dressing to match the the latest fashion trends to attract folks and help them feel comfortable, or they prioritize addressing topics that are intended to pique the interest of unbelievers. Topics like marriage and family, not bad things to address, but things that are just meeting the the felt needs, as it were, of of the world. Or they may base their messages or sermon series off well-known cultural events or current entertainment. But such a blurring of the lines between the church and the world, even well-intentioned as it may be at times, is, is contrary to the biblical model, and it only results in the church becoming more worldly rather than the church impacting the world. Other churches try to impact the world primarily through political or or cultural engagement. In such churches, pastors focus on mobilizing their congregation to fight political battles, and they, they speak regularly about the latest cultural trends and challenges and often present the world as an enemy to be defeated rather than those to whom the gospel's to be proclaimed. Certainly it's true that Christians are called to be salt and light in the midst of our culture. Historically, no group has had more significant cultural influence for good than believers in the various societies across the world and throughout history. All Christians should be faithful and engaged citizens and and some rightfully devote significant time to local and state and national politics, but the primary impact of the church is not through those means. You see, this text and the example of the Thessalonian church that we find here reminds us that the impact of the church is really much simpler. It's the impact of changed lives that amplify the proclaimed word, the message of the gospel. Now, in the larger flow of this letter, we find ourselves in in the first three chapters, which, as I mentioned last time, really are are a section of personal encouragement that Paul wrote to them. He's recounting, he and Silas and Timothy's interaction with them and, and the work that God has done and continues to do through them. So he's not really giving a prescription for a healthy church. He does that in other letters, like the pastoral epistles. This is what the church is to be. He's not really even commanding the church to fulfill its mission to the world as as Christ did prior to his ascension when he gave the Great Commission. Rather, we're really getting a model or a picture of a healthy church and its impact in the Thessalonian church as Paul recounts it for us tonight. So how did this church grow to have such a a powerful impact? Well, notice the first step. It, It began in the second half of verse six with a joyful reception of the word. Look at verse 6. It says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, the main verb in this verse is what comes at the beginning. You became. They became imitators of us. You'll see that second idea of having received the word, which is connected to that main verb. And And one of the first questions that comes in this verse is, what is the relationship between them becoming imitators and them having received the word? Grammatically, there's a variety of options it could be. It it could be that they became imitators by receiving the word, but it says they were imitators of of them and of the Lord, so that's unlikely. The, The Lord didn't receive the word as they did could mean they became imitators with the result that they received the word, although I think that's unlikely for the same reasons. 
Could be they became imitators when or after you receive the word, which is, is closer to what's represented in the New American Standard, or, or just a looser connection they, that both of these are true. They became imitators and they received the word. You know, in some ways, it's kind of like the, the age-old question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, the reality is it's not ultimately a huge deal, and they're both intimately connected and, and, and necessary. But in this case, I think for a number of reasons, it's best to recognize that, at least logically, the receiving of the word came first. This is what's implied in the New American Standard, the ESV translations, the New American Standard saying, having received, almost sounds chronological a little bit, this was what took place first, the ESV, for you received the word. So let's focus first on their joyful reception of the word. It says they received the word. The idea of receiving doesn't just mean that they were there and they heard it. It's the idea of welcoming or accepting. You know, when you think of, of welcoming someone, you might think of, you know, somebody coming to your front door and, and picture the difference between how you respond when the person coming to your front door is someone that you have never seen before and they've got a little clipboard or some flyers and they want to talk to you and sell something. And what do you typically do? You probably wait as long as you can and hope they go away. And If they're really persistent, maybe you slightly open the door and talk to them. Maybe you greet them and try to share the gospel with them. But that's a different reception than if it's your grandkids, right? Or if it's the person, a friend who you haven't seen in years who's coming over and, and as soon as that doorbell rings, you run and you, you welcome them and you embrace them. That was their attitude towards the word. They embraced it. They welcomed it. They received the word. This is a, a reality that is, is so vital for becoming a believer. James 1 says, therefore, verse 21, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That's what the Thessalonians had done. We'll see later on, they'd put aside their sin and, and they humbled themselves and they received the word. They embraced it as true. They welcomed it. Certainly, this refers primarily to their reception of the gospel, which is a focus of this passage, but it also includes all the biblical instruction that they received. Paul refers to that instruction over in, in chapter 4, verse 1. He reminds them that finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. You see, they had a, a favorable reception to the gospel that was proclaimed, and as Paul and, and his companions continued to teach them the truth of God's word, including the commands about what it looks like to walk in obedience to Christ, they continued to embrace and accept that truth. Why did they receive the word in this manner? Well, it, it flows again out of, out of verse 4 that God had chosen them and God was at, so at work in them by his grace through the proclamation of the gospel to open their blind eyes and, and to give life to their dead hearts. It wasn't that they were so smart. It was God's grace towards them. But they welcomed and embraced that truth as a result of that. And what did this reception look like? Was it just, you know, yeah, we, we agree with you. That makes a lot of sense. It was that, but it was, it was far more than that. Look down at verse 9. Verse 9 further describes the, the reception that they had, and in this case focused more on their reception of, of the missionaries, implied being their message. And it says, they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. You see, their reception of the word was not just mental assent, we agree, it included that. It was not just a, a, a response of uh, emotional excitement, no, it was a conviction of the will, a, a faith or trust that produced transformation, repentance, and obedience. They received the word. But it says they received the word, notice, in much tribulation, they received the word in much tribulation. You see, it wasn't easy for them to accept or embrace the word in this manner. 
Their immediate circumstances did not improve because of their response to the gospel and to the teaching of God's word. There was tribulation. You remember back in Acts, it records how Paul and his companions were were kicked out of the city, that the, the Jewish leadership was very hostile to them, so hostile that after they left and they went to Berea, they chased him down there and kicked him out of there as well. It doesn't specifically record how they treated the believers who were left in Thessalonica, but it's certainly understandable to assume that it, it wasn't, they weren't treated well. We see other places in, in Acts that the, the Romans, the Gentiles, were hostile to, to new Christians as well as they were rejecting the idolatry that was so ingrained in their culture and, and their economy. And so these Christians had much to lose in this life because they responded to the word in this manner. But did that tribulation discourage them? Did it make them think about quitting? Did it, did it cause them to reject that message? No. They received the word, it says, in tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Rather than being downcast from what they were suffering, their response was one of joy, joy that was produced not in and of themselves, but the joy that was produced by the Holy Spirit. You recall one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 is, is joy. It is, it is what is produced by the Spirit of God in, in every genuine believer. You know, many initially respond to the message of the gospel with joy, but then they fall away when difficulty arises, proving they were never really true believers in the first place. That's what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 in the parable of the soils, when he, he says, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, it's only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. That wasn't the Thessalonians. They received the word The tribulations and the difficulties and the persecution came, and they continued to embrace the word with joy. See, they demonstrated the reality of their faith and that they persevered in such tribulations, and they did so clinging to the word with joy. This is the first step in being a healthy, impactful church, to receive the word. Such a church doesn't pick and choose what they embrace from God's word. They don't say, yeah, we like that part, but we could do without this other. They don't make decisions individually or corporately about what they will believe or practice based on what will be easy or comfortable or accepted. No, they just receive the word for what it is with authority. They receive the word with joy, even when doing so brings hardships into their life, when it brings tribulation as they stand for the truth. You know, when we do that, individually and collectively, the world takes notice. Some notice and it only makes them more upset. It highlights their sin and so they hate that and they hate Christ and hate us. But some notice and it leads ultimately to their own joyful reception of the word as we'll see as we progress. So as a result of their joyful reception of the word, and even in tribulation, we see a, a second step, which was their eager imitation of godly leaders and the Lord. Verse 6 says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation. As I mentioned, I think logically the reception of the word preceded and fueled the imitation of Paul and his companions. Grammatically, they're they're really closely connected. It's really almost a a simultaneous reality. It's not that they received the word and then thought about it, and a while later they decided eventually, yeah, we're going to imitate these guys and imitate Christ. No. As they received the word, they began to imitate Paul, Silas, and Timothy, ultimately imitating Christ. What is this? Well, this is simply Christian discipleship. This is following Christ. Jesus, to become like him, to imitate him. You see, the call to salvation is a call to discipleship, to follow Christ. 
To receive the gospel is to follow Christ, to imitate him. You know, some wrongly teach that a a Christian can embrace Christ as Savior and, and not as Lord until some point down the road when they make an additional commitment to him. But this is clearly contrary to to Christ's teaching in the entirety of the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 38, he says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You see, a true believer, a disciple, is devoted to Christ. They love him and they follow him even when that brings difficulty, not to earn salvation, not to merit Christ's favor, but as a result of our salvation and as evidence that we've received that salvation. So Romans 10, 9 says what? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, the Thessalonians received the word and became imitators, followers of Christ. One commentator says, we could paraphrase this verse in this way. He says, at the moment when you received the gospel and in much affliction, you started out on a path of discipleship that entails imitating Jesus and his apostles. That's what they did. They heard the message of the gospel They responded and received the message of that gospel, and that led them on the road of Christian discipleship, seeking to become like Christ, imitating him and his uh, his apostles, the the leaders, the godly examples that were in their life. Because you notice, he doesn't just say they became imitators of Christ, that we would understand. But he says in verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. They imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy. You know, part of Christian discipleship, it's right that we imitate the mature leaders that God has placed in our lives. Paul routinely called those to whom he ministered to this imitation. Second Thessalonians, he He reminded them in chapter 3, verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, specifically because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 9, he says, "We, we did this to offer ourselves as a model for you that you would follow our example. 1 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. Philippians 3.17, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Philippians 4.9, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Did Paul just have some, you know, social media-ish perspective that's like life is all about me and I want people to be like me in every way? No, that's not what his focus was. He, he was focused not on the end goal of people looking like him. He recognized this is an important component of Christian discipleship as believers grow to be like their Lord. That's why Paul called Timothy and Titus to be examples to others as well. In 1 Timothy 4.12, to Timothy he said, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. And in Titus 2.7, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. You see, the goal of this imitation is, is not to be, uh, to ultimately to imitate human examples in every detail. You know, it's not, oh, I want to drive the same make and model of car as that Christian leader that I respect. Or I want to wear the same brand of shoes or enjoy, enjoy the same hobbies or eat the same kind of meals. The goal is not cookie-cutter Christians who all look the same and walk the same and act the same in every detail of life. The ultimate goal of imitating godly leaders is to become like Christ. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. So we imitate them not in every detail of life, But as they are modeling Christ-likeness and faithful Christian discipleship, it spurs us on and gives us a picture of that. 
That's why God gave specific character qualities for elders and deacons in in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. While they're certainly not perfect, they're to be what? A, A godly pattern to follow. You know, it's not that those character qualities, if you read through them, are exclusively for those who aspire to be leaders in the church. It's not that if you say, man, I have no interest in being an elder or a deacon, I don't have to worry about being those things. No, they're, they're really what? They're just Christian maturity. They're the attributes and characteristics that all believers should strive to live for. Leaders simply must be an example of those realities for others to follow. See, the reality is it's helpful to have real-life examples of Christian maturity and discipleship. Does that mean you have to manage your household exactly like Tom or any of the other elders do? No, not exactly, but it's helpful to have a picture of what faithful leadership in the home looks like. Do you have to practice hospitality? Again, exactly like one of the, the other elders or leaders, you know, oh, this is what they served when they had people over, that's what we'll serve. No, but you, you see a picture of what that Christian virtue looks like in, in practice, and it helps you and spurs you on towards likeness to Christ. So a key part of Christian discipleship, of following Christ and becoming more like Him, is imitating the godly human examples that God brings into our lives. That was true of the Thessalonians. They became imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy as they were seeking to imitate Christ. Certainly one way they imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy and even Christ was in that response of joy in the midst of tribulation. You remember what happened to Paul and and Silas right before they got to Thessalonica. They were in in Philippi. And what happened in Philippi? Well, they got arrested and they were put in jail. You remember their evangelism of the Philippian jailer? It, It describes how they were in jail and what were they doing? They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God and the prisoners were listening to them. They, They were a model of, hey, in tribulation, how do we respond? with joy, trusting the Lord. And and the prisoners are like, this is crazy. They're singing hymns in prison. And that's part of what led to their opportunities for evangelism. They were imitating Christ in that way as well. Hebrews 12, 2 reminds us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ was a model, an example of enduring tribulation with joy. But this was not the only way in which they imitated them. Verse 5 ended, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. In the brief time that they were there, they'd gotten to know these men, and they understood their character, and they saw how they conducted themselves. Paul's going to rehearse more of that in the beginning of chapter 2. And, and as a result, they had a faithful example of, of, of what it looked like to walk with Christ. John MacArthur writes, to successfully learn spiritual convictions from others and hold them as your own, it's necessary not only to hear them clearly taught, but to see them consistently lived. A healthy church that impacts others is filled with those who are eager to follow Christ as his disciples who long to see the word impact not just their head, but the details of how they live on a day-to-day basis. And and because they long to be like him and to imitate him, they imitate those mature believers who model Christ-likeness for them. The church doesn't impact the world by becoming more like the world. No, they impact the world by becoming more like Christ, which causes a greater contrast with the world. And when we do that, individually and collectively, again, the world takes notice. They see the difference and the distinction, and and some respond with hostility, but some, the Lord uses that to draw them to himself. So as a result of their joyful reception of the word in tribulation and their eager imitation of godly leaders in the Lord and in discipleship, we see a third step flowing from these first two, which was their exemplary reputation with others. Verse 7 says, as a result of these things, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It's you, plural, all of them together, became an example singular. The, The church, 
the collective group of believers there became an example. It wasn't simply that they were a bunch of good individual examples, but that collectively as a church, they were an example. You know, this is remarkable, isn't it? This young church, new believers, limited opportunity for influence and instruction by Paul was a model church, a church that was an example to all the believers in Macedonia, the region where they were located, where their city was, included other cities like Philippi, and in Achaia, which was the southern portion of of Greece, where Corinth was located, and other cities. They, They were a model for those other churches. You know, it says they became an example to all the believers. Does this primarily mean the the ones who were already believers, the other churches and believers who were strengthened and spurred on by their example, or does it mean those who would become believers? I think the emphasis is probably more likely on the the first, but we can't be definitive. But they were a, a model church for others. The believers in other parts of that region could look at that church and say, hey, that's what we should be like. Not so much in all the practical details of their life, but the characteristics that defined them that we've already seen. Again, certainly a primary way they were an example was in their joy in the midst of persecution, as we've already noted. You know, the the reality of difficulty and persecutions was common in the early church, and here was a church that was an example, a picture of how to respond in that. We'll see in the next verse, they were an example in their gospel proclamation, but their example wasn't limited to that. Paul's already talked about in verse 3 how they were, were, had displayed a, a work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. And we read in verse 1 how they, of chapter 4 how they were walking in obedience to the instruction that Paul had received, given them. And In chapter 4, verse 9, it says they indeed do practice the love of others towards all the brethren. So they were a model in a lot of different ways that will be fleshed out as we go through this letter. You see, a healthy church that impacts others does so not because of the size of its budget or the expanse of its campus or its development of amazing programs and all of those things. A place for those, they're useful tools, but they're not the core components of a healthy church that impacts others. Our church or any other healthy church that impacts others will do so as an example of faithfulness and growing conformity to Christ, the desire to boldly proclaim Him and stand for the truth of His Word. That was this church. They became an example to all the believers in their region, which brings us to a fourth and final step we see, which was they had an amplified proclamation of the gospel in verses 8 through 10. He says in verse 8, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. See, one of the reasons for their exemplary reputation and and one of the fruits of that reputation is this proclamation of the gospel from them. And such an amplified proclamation of the gospel involves first the verbal proclamation of the gospel. The verbal proclamation. You see in verse 8 it says, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. The word of the Lord is a, a, a phrase that is used often of the gospel. It's the message from Christ, the message about Christ. In 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Paul says, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did in you also. So it wasn't so much the entirety of the scriptures, but the message about Christ, the good news of the gospel. And it says it has sounded forth from you. This is an interesting word. It's only used here in the New Testament. It's not a common word that Paul used. It's, it's the idea of sounding forth or ringing out or reverberating. You know, it's like when you come into the, to the worship center and you listen to the orchestra play and that brass section that is, is sounding forth from the stage. There's probably never a Sunday that you say, oh, I just couldn't hear the brass today, right? Because it's like, no, it sounds forth. There may be another mic that's off or something, but that that sounds forth. It reverberates from where they are playing. 
That's what was going on with them. It was sounding forth, and notice where, again, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, the regions of Greece around them, but it says in every place your faith towards God has gone forth. Now, there's some debate uh, as to whether what Paul is talking about is, is the fact that they were being actively evangelistic. Were they intentionally proclaiming the gospel themselves, or if this was more of a passive spreading of the, the news, the report about them? You know, certainly word had spread, and it was spreading by others. Verse 9 says that Others report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. So there were people talking about the Thessalonians and about the change that had brought, been brought about through these missionaries and the proclamation of the gospel and, and their response. But the first part of verse 8, I think, makes it very clear that not only were others talking about them, but they were actively proclaiming these things as well. The literal word order of the beginning of verse 8 is, from you has sounded forth the word of the Lord. They were intentionally declaring the message that they had heard and learned. They were proclaiming the message of the gospel. Now, it's probably unlikely that in in a few short months that they had already you know, formally structured a plan to send forth missionaries to the surrounding regions to proclaim the gospel, but they were actively proclaiming this message and its impact on their lives. You remember we said last week that this was a a key city within the empire located on a a major highway and, and a key port location. Hendrickson, commentator, writes this of that. It says, it should be borne in mind that the populous trading center Thessalonica was so located on the Ignatian Highway, thus linking the east with the west and at the head of the Thermaic Gulf, thus connecting it with harbors all over the then known world, that news could spread very quickly to regions far and near. All the believers at Thessalonica had to do was avail themselves of the opportunities which their strategic location afforded. Now, the point certainly is not that merely the rumor with reference to the great change at Thessalonica had been spreading, but rather that the believers there, in the enthusiasm of a great discovery, actively propagated their faith toward God. That's what's going on. They are verbally proclaiming the message of the gospel. Now, obviously, not every church has the same platform that this church enjoyed, on a major highway, in a key city, a key port city that allowed their influence to be widespread. But all churches, regardless of their platform, should be equally zealous to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ, to be faithful, to boldly proclaim this message. Now, what specifically was the gospel message that sounded forth from them? Paul doesn't recount it here. You know, in the book of Romans, he spends a long time saying, this is the gospel that I proclaimed. Here, he doesn't define it specifically, but he does allude to it, and and we see the message in, in what was reported about the Thessalonians. Notice verse 9 and 10, the, the report that was, was spreading about them. Verse 9 says, they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. This is a, the testimony of the Thessalonians, but you see woven into that testimony is what? It's the gospel. It's all the elements of, of the true gospel. We see that there is one true God, and we are accountable to him. What does it describe? How they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. The Thessalonians had a crystal clear understanding that there is one true God, that the rest of the gods are false gods, they're idols, and that only that true God is worthy of worship and service, and that we are responsible to and accountable to him. They had a clear understanding that we are sinners who deserve God's judgment. They recognized that we need to be rescued from the wrath to come. Paul makes it 
clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, what he's talking about. He says, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. You see, they recognized, we've got a problem. We have been idolaters. We have worshipped false gods. We've not served the true God. And as a result of that, we deserve the consequences of our sin, the judgment from God. They understood, third, that Jesus is the resurrected Savior who's rescued us from God's wrath. They recognize Jesus, and He alone is the Savior. He's the Son. He's God. And we're waiting for Him to come back from heaven, this one whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. They understood and were proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God, that He came and that He died, taking the punishment as a substitute, bearing the wrath we deserve, and and that He was raised from the dead, that that declared that that payment was accepted by the Father, that death had in fact been defeated. They understood Jesus is the only Savior, the one who rescues us from God's wrath, and that we must respond to that message, that we must repent and believe. What did they do? They, they turned to God from idols. This is a common phrase in, in the book of Acts, throughout the book, that, that is a description of the repentance of those who hear the gospel and, and respond to the gospel, turning from their idolatry to the true God. And they believed, they had faith. As verse 8 says, it was their faith towards God that had gone forth. News of that. The Thessalonians understood the gospel. They embraced the gospel and it was this gospel that was sounding forth from them. This message of hope through Jesus Christ. This was the gospel they'd received and that was the gospel that they proclaimed. But this amplified proclamation of the gospel involves not only the the verbal uh, proclamation of that gospel, but secondly, the visible demonstration of changed lives. You know, what was it that made the Thessalonian church so effective in proclaiming the gospel to others? Why was this news spreading so rapidly? Some of it was God's providence and their location and the opportunities that were before them, but Paul highlights here the visible demonstration of a changed life. Why was it reverberating so loudly? Not simply because of the message itself, although that's enough, the gospel is the power of God for salvation, but because of the transformation. Again, notice verse 9, this report that Paul is hearing about. Is it simply that the gospel was proclaimed? No. People were talking not only about the gospel, but about the gospel's impact in Thessalonica, that they had received the missionaries and their message. They they embraced this message, and, and it totally transformed their life. They turned to God from idols. They stopped worshiping the, the pagan idols of their city. They, they totally severed the secular worship that was characteristic of everybody around them. This is an indication many of them were, were Gentiles who had repented, not simply Jews in that city. And they were willing to turn from all of that, everything they had known. And now they were focused on serving, on being committed and devoted to the one true and living God. And it says they were waiting for his son from heaven, this one whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Was this a waiting that was kind of just a sitting around, twiddling their thumbs? I mean, Paul does instruct them more about what it looks like to wait for the Lord, but I think the, impact, or the, uh, the, the emphasis here is, is on the fact that Christ's return was having an impact on how they lived now. As they lived, they were living with an expectation of the return of Christ that impacted their life now. You see, the gospel message proclaimed was amplified, as it were, by the testimony of their lives. They gave verbal witness to the gospel. 
and the corroborating evidence regarding the reality of the gospel was the transformation it had produced in them. The gospel is true regardless of what our lives demonstrate, but when our lives demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel, it amplifies that message and it impacts the world. This is how a healthy church impacts the world around them. John Stott notes, no church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. You see, both the verbal proclamation and the visible demonstration of a changed life are vital for the spread of the gospel. You know, as Christians, we have opportunities to talk to others about the gospel. We have the opportunity to live out the demonstration of, of the change that Christ has produced in our life. I don't know, know about you, but it, it's easier for me sometimes to talk about the impact that Christ has had on my life and so, in some way minimize the, the truth, especially the exclusivity of the gospel. You know, today, more people are offended even by that. But many are still like, you know, whatever, whatever Christ has done for you is fine for you, just don't talk about me, right? This is a a reminder that it's not enough to tell people about or demonstrate the changed life. We, We must declare the truth of the gospel, but that truth needs to be reflected in the reality of our life as well. You know, we have a chance to share our testimony with somebody. When, when you're talking to somebody and you're explaining to them, you know, maybe why you go to church and you get to talk about how you didn't used to go to church, but now you do because of, of the importance of Christ in your life. You can share your testimony, but that's not sharing the gospel unless you share the gospel as a part of your testimony. You know, this is a beautiful picture of that here in, in 1 Thessalonians. As they're talking about the change in their life, they are also talking about and declaring the reality of the gospel. That's what the Thessalonians did. Their changed lives amplified the proclamation of the gospel such that it sounded forth from them. So what we see in this passage and what we will continue to see in this book is that this was a model church. They were an example to all the believers in all Macedonia as they received the word and as they imitated Christ and and the godly leaders in their life in seeking to become more Christ-like. And and so they were a picture of of what the church is to be in, in those ways and in the ways that they were proclaiming that message of the gospel to others. They were a model church in their day, and they are a model church for us as well. How does a church impact the world around them? It starts with receiving the word with joy, even in the midst of tribulations. We don't pick and choose what we accept from this book. We embrace it. Regardless of what our minds think, regardless of what our world thinks, this book is the standard that we embrace. And if that creates problems in our life, challenges in our community, Issues in relationships, we continue to have joy in the Lord produced by the Holy Spirit. And and we imitate Christ and the other godly believers in discipleship. We long above all else to be like our Lord. And we are thankful for the examples that he brings of other believers, believers more mature than us that we can look to and say, ah, that's what it looks like to follow Christ. That's what it looks like to to be obedient to him in these areas of my life. That's what it looks like to practice Christian discipleship. And when we do those things, we become an example to others as we mature. And our church collectively becomes an example and an encouragement to other believers, to other churches in our area. And we boldly proclaim the gospel amplifying that message with the testimony of our own changed lives. You know, Paul's goal as a missionary was not to tell every single person about the gospel. His goal was to establish churches like this one, to know that when there was a healthy church in a region, that church, 
as they've received the word and they're growing in Christ's likeness, will be an example and from them will sound forth the word of the Lord, amplified by the transformation that has produced in them. That was the example of the church of the Thessalonians. May that be true of our church. May we be like this one, receiving the word, imitating Christ, being an example and seeing the gospel sound forth from us as we live out its impact in our life. May that be true of the, the churches we plant. Now, when you think of, of North Lake Bible Church, pray this will be true of them. This is what the Lord is, is doing, the impact that he gives. As we anticipate another church plant, pray that this is exactly what will happen in that church that this will be the reality of a, of a healthy church and other churches that we partner with in, in our metroplex and around the world. And when that happens, may we recognize it as Paul does, even in this passage, as a work of God's grace. And as we recognize it as that, may we also give thanks to God, praising him and thanking him for the work that he does, not only in us, but in his grace through us as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the example of this church. We recognize that is a testimony to your grace, your work in them as your word produced a powerful transformation. Lord, we thank you for the work that you are doing in this church. We pray that we would be characterized by these same realities, that we would be eager to receive the word. Lord, don't let us grow tired of having our minds and hearts shaped by your truth, and don't let us be merely hearers, but let us be doers of that word. Lord, help us to grow and in Christian discipleship, continue to raise up godly examples in this church who point others to Christ, and help each of us to be devoted to being like him so that we too can be an example to others. And Lord, help us to proclaim the word of the Lord. Make us bold ambassadors for Christ to give verbal proclamation to the truth of the gospel. Help us to speak that boldly in the relationships that you've given us in our homes and our workplaces and as we interact with others in our community and beyond. And and Lord, may that gospel message be reinforced by the, the visible demonstration of transformation in our life. Lord, may our church be a healthy church that impacts others in this way. Lord, may Northlake be that as well and and future church plants that we have the joy of partnering with and and all the churches that we have relationship with and and the opportunity to come alongside and and to encourage through our missionaries and, and other avenues. Lord, we pray that the word of the Lord would sound forth from us every place our faith toward God has gone forth so that others are impacted, that the gospel is proclaimed and Christ is exalted through saving sinners and establishing additional healthy churches that do the same. We thank you and entrust the rest of our night to you now in Christ's name. Amen.